0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Rock Harbor Church, a virtual church, basically. Um, As you know, we cannot meet. We meet in the school. And so uh, we are in quarantine and uh, we cannot meet until uh, California rolls back, our ability to, to come back and meet. And so we don't know how long we're going to be in this state. But anyway, we, we still feel compelled to uh, broadcast our services so that you at home can enjoy them in your home. And we have a lot of people not only here locally, but around the world watching us as well. So we, we thank you for joining us. And we're in a series in Exodus, and we're studying Moses going through all the trials that he's going through. And so today we're going to look at a very famous passage, one that people know very well, but we're going to dig pretty deep into it to understand all that was going on in Moses' life. What you're seeing now uh, in Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to look at 1 through 17, we're going to look at the doubts that Moses had. And so we entitled this Overcoming Doubts. Now, Moses is called now to do the task for God to deliver, uh, Israel from Egypt. And so this is his discussion with God and they're going back and forth and God's calling them to do it. And this is where Moses starts doubting the call, doubting if this is really what some, something he wants to do. And we all have doubts. Understand when we're talking about doubts, doubts are not the opposite of, of faith. Doubts are part of faith. They're embedded in faith, okay? So we have faith in the Lord, but we're going to have times of doubt. And all the biblical characters, as you look at, had times of doubt. Even John the Baptist, as you recall, had a time of doubt about the Messiah. And so you'll see even the best of the biblical characters having doubts. And Moses is here having doubts. And so will we. So it's not like we don't believe in God. It's that we're going to have pockets or categories in where we don't trust him for certain things, certain specific things. And that's what we're going to see with Moses. He doesn't trust God for specific things. And so God is going to assure him to erase those doubts. We'll talk about more about our own personal doubts later on in the application. But now let's dig in and look at the doubts that Moses has and look at how God overcame those doubts by providing Moses what he needed to assure him that he's going to be with them and it's going to be a successful mission for him. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus 4 and we're going to start in uh, verse 1. And it says this, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So again, the whole context is this, that uh, he's going to be sent to the Israelites to deliver them. He's been called to do this by God. He's going to talk to the elders first. God has already told him that the elders will listen to him. The elders will accept his message. But he's still having doubts. And right now, you what you're starting to see with Moses, is he's starting to play the what-if game, the hypothetical scenarios. What if they don't believe me kind of idea. And so you want to say to Moses, Moses, God just said in the passage before you, in the same conversation in Exodus 3.18, that they would listen to you. But again, this is how doubt creeps in. And he, he doesn't really believe that, the, that the, the Hebrews are going to accept what he's going to say. So, you know, in many ways, he's not necessarily doubting God. He's doubting the response of the Israelites so in some way, indirectly, he's doubting God because God told him they would listen to him. But it, it it just goes, he's more focused in on Israel's reception of him. And I think there's a lot to that because of the first reaction that he had with the Israelites. And when he first tried to deliver uh, a Jew from the hand of the Egyptian and ended up murdering him, and he was rejected by the Jews at that time 40 years ago. So that's all playing into his mindset. About this. And so um, this is a human component that all of us have in our walk with the Lord. And again, it's not like we don't believe in God. We just believe that people's reactions are going to be different. They're not going to accept what we're going to say. And so we doubt indirectly the call, if you want to say that. And so he 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 doesn't want rejection because that's the last the last thing he did. He got rejected. And he doesn't want to go through that again. It was very painful. It cost him 40 years. And he's afraid that, you know, they're going to remember that this is a murderer. This is a fugitive. We don't want to hear anything from this guy. He has no credibility with us. And because the last time he tried something, he did it without the authority of God, if you recall. And so Moses doesn't want to appear foolish. And see, a lot of times God's going to call you and I to do certain things, and we're going to appear foolish to the world. And he doesn't want that and so you know that's why we become fools for Christ because what we do the world's gonna look at it and mock at, mock at it and say why are you doing it are you wasting your time and in, in a lot of ways you will look undignified you will lose your reputation with the world and you have to be okay with that you have to be okay with the world saying that you're weird or we don't get you or you, you're part of the tinfoil hat brigade or whatever Um. And so Moses is fighting embarrassment. And that's what a lot of us fight in our call that God puts on our lives. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to lose a reputation. We don't, look, we don't want to look stupid. And so Moses, this is all the things that are going on in Moses and in and, and saying this. Why, what if they don't believe me? And uh, anyway, Moses has to understand, just like you and I do, that he has to fear the Lord rather than man. Just simply obey what the Lord's telling you, and regardless of how you appear, just do what the Lord tells you to do, and don't fear what man thinks. And that's what the Lord's trying to help him with. And so, you got to remember, you and I have to remember, in our call with the Lord, we cannot operate for the Lord and try to please man at the same time. It just doesn't work. You can't serve two masters, right? And anyway... Um, forget about the world's respect of us. They don't respect us anyway, so who cares? Get to the point where you just don't care and and that you're just going to follow the Lord's will no matter what he calls you to do. Anyway, the Lord's going to help Moses and he's going to give him three signs. And these three signs are going to help Moses, but also with his relationship with Israel as well and helping them to believe what Moses is saying. Now, these are signs that something inanimate will turn that's non-threatening will turn into something alive or something that poses uh, a danger or is life threatening so we go from some uh, an inanimate object being changed into something that will be life threatening and this will be the proof not only to Israel but also to Pharaoh as well that this is coming from Yahweh the God of the universe the one true God and so we're going to see this And so this is interesting. God is going to take something that's non-threatening and make it threatening. And so you'll see that same principle in the plagues of Egypt. Water will turn into blood, which threatens. A frog turns into an infestation of frogs. Dirt turns into lice. A fly turns into swarms of flies. A submicroscopic agent turns into a disease on the cattle. Ashes turn into boils on people's skin. Rain turns into a fiery hail. A simple grasshopper turns into a plague of locusts. Darkness that takes away sight. And then an angel, a good angel, who is now given the task to administer death to the firstborn. So God will take something that is non-threatening and, and with his creative ability make it threatening to Egypt, and that will be the common theme you'll see in the plague. So he starts out with these three um, assurances with Moses. What's the point on this? The point is this: it's a demonstration of God's power, no doubt about that. No false god can do this. No fallen angel can do this. No demon can do this. Only God Most High can do this. Is create sometimes life uh, out of an inanimate object, as you'll see with the rod turned into a snake or turning a substance into something different, like water into blood. Only God can do things like this. And and so um, it's, it's calling upon the Israelites to see this, and it's calling on Pharaoh to relent now, or else face more. And so, let's go back to the text. And the text says this. So the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And he said, Moses said, a rod. Now, I want to pay particular attention to this because a staff in the ancient world represented the person's power and authority. It represented protection. It was kind of like the idea of carrying a gun today. And it also the idea of a means of identification. They would carve things on their rods to identify the rod with themselves. And so it was kind of like a driver's license in a lot of ways. Or a passport, if you want to think of those in that term. But a rod was very, very important to the people of that day. Anyway, um, it was a valued possession in the, in, in the Near East and Middle East. And so carrying a staff was normal for men. You didn't see women carry a staff. But Moses' staff is now going to become a tool in God's hand. It's going to actually be called God's staff later on. God will adopt that staff and work through that staff, his miracles and wonders, and his power will be made manifest through that staff. So anyway, it's going to, the staff is not just tied to Moses, it's now going to be tied to a symbol of God's authority, supremacy over the Egyptian gods, and God's very presence. So this staff is very important. And this staff will be used not only to erase the doubts of Moses and Aaron too, and the Israelites, but also to convince Pharaoh You better let the Israelites go. You're playing with fire. You don't know who you're dealing with. So anyway, back to the, uh, to the scripture. Verse three. He said, cast it to the, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. So Moses is initially afraid of it because it does turn into a a serpent, a very dangerous serpent. Verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, in in the Near East and the Middle East, no one who's going to catch a serpent takes any serpent by the tail. It's the opposite of what you would do. If you were trying to catch a serpent, you would catch it by the neck. So God is asking Moses, take it by the tail, because even though it's deadly and life-threatening, I have control of it, and it will not hurt you. I'm the one in control of this snake. So he reached out. Uh, Took it by the tail and caught it, and, and then it became a rod back in his hand, okay? So this is a big deal because we're seeing the God of creation here. We're seeing that God can create out of nothing or even an inanimate object and create a live living creature, okay? Nothing in this world, nowhere in the spiritual realm can anything happen like this. This is God's proof that he is the creator. Verse 5, that they may believe the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Notice that phrase just keeps coming up. So I I, I sound like I'm repeating myself, but the phrase keeps repeating because he wants the Israelites to know that he's the God of, of the patriarchs, the God of the covenant of Abraham, the one true God. And so he's hearkening back to Abraham and all the promises made to Abraham and the Jews for that matter. And again, God is trying to relate this to their knowledge um, that he is the one true God. See, what was happening, and we, we talked about this a little bit last week, the Jews had started worshiping the Egyptian gods. And Joshua mentions this in Joshua 24, So there was a kind of a syncretism, a uh, a kind of a polytheistic belief that was going on in the nation of Israel. And so God is trying to rid that of them and remind them of where they come from, their origins, and that they worship the one true God and all these other gods are false gods. So that's why this is a reminder constantly to Israel. And anyway, they'll struggle with this all through the Exodus. They'll struggle with it in the desert. And they'll struggle even when they get into the land with this whole thing of foreign gods. So anyway, um it's it's a kind of constant theme in the life of Israel. But again, what does this harken back to? Creation. If you think about this, when God made man, he made Adam, he created him out of the clay and the dust of the ground. You remember that. Inanimate object like dirt. And then he creates a living being out of that and breathes the breath of life into Adam. At that time, this is the power of the one true God, okay? And he he can create life out of nothing or inanimate objects, and that is a big deal out of the, in the physical realm. And so God is showing that he can override the laws of nature and the physical realm. The same is true when you saw Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. He'll give sight to the blind. Do you remember what he used one time? He got dirt and mixed it with his spit and made mud and put the mud, uh, the inanimate object, on the guy's eyes. And then it cre- uh, healed his eyes. It's the same concept, right? Jesus was showing that he is the creator as well. So anyway, this staff is now going to represent Yahweh, the power of God, in this staff through Moses. And, and and so it's going to be highly highly symbolic to not only the jews but to pharaoh as well but i want to make special note about the serpent why a serpent why didn't he turn the 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 rod into something else why a serpent this is where a lot of commentators won't go for some reason this is where i want to go because when you see a serpent in scripture that should be a red flag a complete red flag because the serpent is a symbol of Satan. A symbol of evil powers. A symbol of chaos, even from the underworld. The Hebrew word for snake, uh, nakash, is also so associated with divination, including the verb form meaning to practice divination or fortune-telling. The Hebrew Bible, nakash, occurs in the Bible to identify the serpent of the Garden of Eden. and nakash is what appeared to... Adam and Eve, if you recall. Remember, he was either bipedal or quadrupedal. But anyway, throughout the Hebrew Bible, it is also used in conjunction with seraph to describe vicious serpents in the wilderness. Or the tanin, a dragon uh, serpentine monster, also occurs throughout um, the Bible. And many times it's referred to as Leviathan. and You see this in Isaiah 27.1. So serpent is also used to describe sea monsters, and and obviously serpents on the ground. In the book of Amos, if you look at the other references, the serpent will reside at the bottom of the sea in Amos 9.3, and then also a serpent is figuratively described in biblical places such as Egypt, the city of Dan, um, even the prophet Jeremiah compares the king of Babylon to a serpent. Um, so here's the question. Why a serpent? If it goes back to the Hebrews, then what do the Hebrews know about a serpent? They know that a serpent is related to the Garden of Eden. They know it's related to the fallen one. They know it's related to Satan, the accuser. And, and so this is a reminder to the Jews that Satan is the one influencing Egypt to do this to them. Because of the promises made to Abraham, Satan wants to wipe out every Jew, and he's doing it through Pharaoh. And again, let me remind you about the typology of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a typology of the Antichrist so is Nimrod, so is Haman, so is Antiochus Epiphanes. All of these guys are Antichrist-esque. They point forward. So, when the serpent is being used, it is a reference to Satan and the fact that Satan is driving Pharaoh to do this. He could be possessed, he could be oppressed, but it is Satan who is behind all of this. And the demonic realm that's doing this obviously the the many gods there with you know you know a lot of them are are you know fallen angels or demons, and so that worshiping is going on there and notice notice this when you look at the headdress of pharaohs, what does the pharaoh's headdress always represent if you look at this headdress. The headdress is in the form of a cobra. You see how it sticks out from his head? And then right there on the the top of the crown is a serpentine, is a serpent, a cobra. But so the headdress in any pharaoh, in any dynasty, is meant to represent the cobra, the serpent. And so it tells you who Egypt is following. They are following Satan. That's their god, really, and all these other... Lesser gods in Egypt are none other than demons and fallen angels. And so God is trying to send a message, not only to Moses, but to to Israel. I can create this rod into a serpent that represents Satan and the fallen angels and that whole demonic realm. But look how easy I can control it. I can have Moses pick pick the, the serpent up by the tail. It won't bite him and turns right back into a rod. What God is saying to Israel is, do not be afraid of them, even though the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the fallen angel, and his one-third of demons are following him. And behind all of this, I'm in full control, and, and they will not be successful in attempting to annihilate you. I can control Satan just as easy as Moses can change his staff into a serpent and back into a staff and grab its tail. Their power is no match for mine, Yahweh is saying. They will, in effect, the the powers of darkness will be powerless against me, and I will show that to them. And the first way I'm going to show it is Moses' ability to handle a poisonous snake. Just like I can handle Satan just as easy. That is a major lesson, and no one wants to talk about that for some reason, I don't know, but it is a powerful, powerful statement by God against Satan, who is inspiring Egypt to do this. And in any way, God's power, um, again, the message behind it is that God can take something that's dangerous and also make it harmless. So we can take a snake and turn it back into a rod. And again, this is all supposed to erase the doubts of Moses. So what God is telling Moses and what he's telling us, I'm providing you with my power uh, to prove that I've spoken to you, to authenticate you by these miraculous signs. You have my authority and you will demonstrate this power. Okay, Moses, Moses will be able to do this at will at any point in time. So anyway, let's return back to the scriptures. It says, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he, he put his hand in his bosom and he took it out. And behold, his hand was leprous like snow. In verse seven. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, he was restored like his other flesh. What's going on here? There's no doubt we understand that God has the power over death, God has the power over disease, and he can take it away, give it any at any point in time, he can. But what is the messaging behind this miracle? Well, let me, let me point out a few things about the ancient world. People made supplications to their gods, and they thought that the god had inflicted disease on them in the form of a judgment, okay? But they didn't understand the medical reasons behind diseases a lot of times. So there was a lot of superstition, a lot of things that they, they thought were coming from the gods, right? So anyway, Moses comes along and is able to do a healing miracle. And his message in the miracle is evidence of the power of the one true God who can inflict and withdraw disease in an instant. And so Moses' miracle with this, is a challenge. Can any other of the false gods of Egypt or of this world do this in an instant? I, I'm i the one who can cause disease and lift the disease in an instant. Anyway, another thing that's going on here is a warning to Pharaoh that through Moses and the staff, God has a power to inflict on him and Egypt or to save with simply a word from him. And so, Pharaoh better understand who he's dealing with, because God, all all he has to do is give the word. He can inflict, or he can take away. That's what the plagues are going to represent to Pharaoh. God will put up, put the plagues on him, and then the, the minute he wants to take them off, he'll take them off. But as you study further about this, in Egyptian literature, This is going a little bit further. They blame the evils that suffered by people in the populace on impure and diseased people. And so they say the evils are happening because there's there's impure and diseased people. And and so this is probably one of the things in, in the propaganda they said about the Israelis. Not only were, were the propaganda going out about them that they're going to take over, they're going to attack us from within, they're going to join up with other Semitic tribes and destroy Egypt. In Egyptian literature, they point out that these evils that come upon the Egyptians come from diseased people. And guess who you probably think they, cause, they call diseased? The Jews, right? It's funny. That's the same thing they said in Nazi Germany. And it's some of the same things they're saying today. They've said it all through history. It's, they blame the Jews, and they're diseased, and there's something wrong. They're rats. They're, you know, all the junk they've always said. Well, anyway, there's something about this miracle that's offsetting this Egyptian mindset. So this sign that Moses can do by the healing of leprous hands uh, from the, from this contains a message that while the Egyptians treat the Israelites as a source of trouble. In fact, as you know, the Israelites are blameless, right? Well, in a sense, the sign is meant to inspire the Israelites in many, many ways to reject the status according to them by the Egyptians. So basically, God is saying, look, don't let them call you diseased and that you're causing all these problems for us. So it's a step towards emancipation and and, and them mentally to understand you're not to blame for this. Because, you know, it's like what happened in Germany. If you keep saying a lie over and over again, people start believing it. And even the the scapegoat sometimes starts believing it. Well, it's because there's something wrong with us. And anyway, so when you put that in context, you understand why God is doing a miracle like this and saying, "Look." You may be perceived as impure to the Egyptians, but you're not. You're my people, and I'm going to take you from these people. They're the ones who are impure. They're the ones who are tied to the de- demons, not you. And so you're my people, and I'm going to rescue you out of, you're out of Egypt. You're not the cancer. They are. Anyway... The idea and the principle is this, that God can take what is called unclean and purify it. That's the healing of leprosy. And you'll see the same message in the Messiah's miracles in the Gospels when he can heal of leprosy. He can take that which is unclean and purify. It's a spiritual lesson. God, if we can offer the salvation that he offers to all of us freely, if we take that by faith, he can take us who are unclean and purify us through the Messiah and make us pure in the righteousness of Christ. That's what the miracle of this stands for. It's a, it's a it's not only a physical thing, but it's also a spiritual lesson as well for the people of Israel. Because he's going to take them out in the desert and he's going to purify them. He's going to do that through sacrifices and the law and different aspects of that nature. So they start living a holy life. So let's return back to verse 8. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now, obviously, this miracle, this third miracle, this, this third assurance to raise Moses' doubts, foreshadows the first plague. And basically, it's a judgment um, uh, miracle, so to speak, um, that if Pharaoh won't relent from, from just the first time talking to him, then this is what will happen afterwards. And it also tells the Israelites about Egypt, since it deals with the Nile water. That's where he got the water from. The Egyptians believe, obviously, in pantheism, right? And so the Nile right there on your screen, as you see, was a god to them. You know, so inanimate objects like the Nile was a god. And the god associated to the Nile was Hapi, H-A-P-I. And Ahapi was a male-female hermaphrodite god who was capable of fertilizing the land, the male aspect, when she flooded the land, or he flooded the land, I don't know which one, uh, and then through the annual flooding would nourish the land, obviously, and then would supply water, the female aspect, to Egypt. So, it was, it was a god to them, right? Happy. Therefore, what Yahweh was doing is taking from this so-called god, and maybe there was a fallen angel associated to this, maybe there was a demon associated to this, but anyway, Yahweh is taking from this god, a piece of this God, so to speak, the water, and taking a part of that and changing that God's composition from water to blood, showing that Yahweh has full control of the object and the God of the river. There there really is no God. God's the only one, but he's taking a piece. And if this God is so powerful to overcome him, how come he can't stop me? It's that that kind of idea, right? It's, It's a challenge to Hopi. It's a challenge to the Egyptian uh, pantheon of gods. And it's demonstrating that God has power over the Nile God and the Nile itself and Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. It also tells the Israelites through foreshadowing that this is a sample of the power that will be unleashed on the Egyptians and their so-called gods who are supposed to protect them and provide for them. They look to the Nile as, as, you know, a God that provided for them, right? And God's going to gonna shut the waterworks off and turn everything into blood, which cannot be used, right, for their crops, for drinking or whatnot. So anyway, the message too is the spirit creatures, the fallen angels, the demons that these Egyptians worship are impotent compared to God's infinite power. They cannot do anything to offset this, to fight this. But here's another question. Why blood? Well, it's something that has to do with what the Egyptians were doing. Because the Egyptians had sanctioned the murdering of Hebrew male babies by casting them into the Nile, the Nile God, right? And you remember the Egyptians had had tied it to this religion of Hapi to relieve the guilt of murdering them Murdering Hebrew babies by telling the Egyptians that if you cast a Hebrew baby into the Nile, then the Nile God Happy would re- either receive the child and kill it as a sacrifice, I guess, or would reject the child and cast the baby out of it if it didn't want the child. Well, you know the story on that one. Um, the Nile is no god, so every Hebrew baby they threw into it drowned and died. Right. They never cast it out. But then again, they were using this to relieve the Egyptians' guilt. So, all the Hebrew babies that had died, their blood was on the Egyptians' hands. And it was a situation like when Cain murdered Abel, and God said Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice, right? And so the blood of these infant Hebrews that were killed by the Egyptians, cried out and demanded justice. And and the same as today, if you want to relate something like this to today, um, when you hear it's a woman's right to her body, and these Planned Parenthoods are doing nothing but abortion mills and murdering babies, thousands and thousands of babies, and it's funny, in our coronavirus shutdown, the Planned Parenthood is considered essential, right? Them and bars and liquor stores uh, are considered essential, but churches are not, so we're shut down. So you know, you know how our society thinks. But anyway, and then, then easing the guilt of murdering all these babies by saying it's a woman's reproductive rights and woman's right to health. Or we're reducing the population because Mother Earth is telling us we have too many people on the Earth, and so it, we're helping Mother Earth get rid of so many people as the eugenics want, like Bill Gates and George Soros and all these guys who want to reduce our planet to 500 million people. So again, it's the same concept. It's murder. Hence, this goes back to Genesis 9. And this goes back to the Noahic covenant. Under the Noahic covenant, this is the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. Capital punishment for murder is now been issued by God. And it's not a church thing, it's not a, uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a creation thing. It's creation order, it's under them the way of covenant. So when a nation doesn't punish and use capital punishment for murderers, then it has blood on its hands. And folks, I hate to be the one to tell us, but because of the abortion mills here in America, America will have to answer for all the blood that's been shed. And so this is why God changes the water into blood. And, it, and, and even, even in, in Genesis 9, when you read that in verse 5, it says this, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So basically the idea here is God will avenge the blood that was shed by the innocent Hebrew babies, um, uh, by the Egyptians. And the same is true for us. There's been so much bloodshed, so much wrong, and and there's been a lot of death. Well, it's going to come to a head. And guess what? Will we see something on the level of water turning to blood in the future? Yes, we will. In fact, most of the earth's water systems will be turned to blood. Why? Because of this same issue. For man shedding man's blood, there will be an accounting. You will see in the book of Revelation that a fourth of the rivers, a fourth of the water, has been turned to blood. So in the future... God will eventually turn all the seas and all the rivers into blood, if you look at revelation sixteen in the in the uh bowl judgments the vile judgments, all of the water on planet earth turns to blood, and so this murdering of innocent people is accumulating, and that plague will be unleashed in the tribulation. What you'll find about the tribulation is very similar to the plagues of egypt, so again. If you're looking at what's going on with Pharaoh and Moses, and you're looking at the Egyptians and and, uh, and the Israelites, you're looking at a microcosm of Israel in the tribulation period with the Antichrist. That's what it is. It's a picture or a foreshadowing of that tribulation period. And Moses is playing the role of the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. And so, every every... Nook and cranny, as you study Moses, always think forward to Jesus and him delivering the Israelites. And it won't be Pharaoh, it will be the Antichrist. So let's take a pause here and do a little bit of application here about doubt. What this illustrates is that God wants to erase our doubts. He does that for Moses by giving him these miraculous signs and erase the doubts of, obviously, uh, the Israelites uh, as well. So God reveals himself in all that he would provide for the Israelites and Moses. And this was enough evidence for them to believe that God was going to do this. But it left the Israelites and the Egyptians with the freedom to believe or not to believe. And as you see with the Israelites, they will believe. But as with the Egyptians, they won't. There is a mixed uh, a mixed bag uh, uh, of people that come out of the out of uh, uh, the Exodus, in the Exodus, that includes some Egyptians. There's no doubt about that. But for the most part, the Egyptian empire and the most part, the people of Egypt will not believe, even despite all the miracles and plagues. But that's what God gives us. He gives us the freedom to believe or not believe. And he gives us the freedom, even in our walk with the Lord as believers, the freedom to doubt. And again, without the freedom to doubt, then we really don't have a relationship with God. Now, doubt's not a good thing, uh, but we do have that freedom. And that's why we struggle with it sometimes. Because otherwise, God wouldn't have a good relationship with us if we didn't have that type of freedom to not believe. So a lot of people beat themselves up when they doubt. And they say, I can't believe I'm doubting this. and, and, And so they beat themselves up spiritually. No, it's a part of our walk with the Lord, and we're when we have those doubts, we are to look to how God assures us in those areas to erase those doubts. There's, there, there, there's just an area of growth we need is what needs to happen, and that's what he's doing for Moses so he can face this head on. And always remember this. God provides enough evidence for us to believe, but not so much evidence that it eliminates our faith. So there's always an element there that you have to trust, always an element that Moses will have to just step out on a certain level, right? And it's the same thing with us. So let's return to the Scriptures and look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now this passage, folks, is most of the time misunderstood and misinterpreted. Moses is not saying I have a, pro- a speech impediment. He is not saying he doesn't know how to speak. Um Moses is speaking in a near eastern fashion figuratively not literally. He's using a typical ancient middle eastern middle eastern or near eastern way to speak of his own humility. Okay? So don't think that Moses has a speaking problem. He doesn't. That's that's not what's going on here and it, and most commentators will take this on face value, but they don't understand the the Near Eastern way of talking. Um, what he is saying is, and, and we have verification of this, by the way, in, in the book of Acts, when Stephen gives his speech to the Sanhedrin, he says that Moses is, is mighty in deeds and words, according to Stephen. So that would be a contradiction if we said Moses had a stuttering problem. No, he's mighty in words. He's a good speaker. What is this? It's a typical Near Eastern style of responding to a great mission from God with an exaggerated humility and meekness, which is, which was expected and valued in the ancient times. That's what's happening here. So basically, Moses is emphasizing his need for divine help in an ancient Near Eastern form of humility. And you'll see this all through the, the Old Testament. There are different pictures of this with uh, Abraham, Saul will do this, Solomon will do this, David will do this, even the Apostle Paul will do this in the New Testament. It is just how they spoke. They would, they would bring themselves as low. Like Paul had said, I'm the worst of sinners. He'd say things like that. That is how they spoke when they spoke of their own humility, Okay. So it's not because he has a stuttering problem. Um, so God is going to encourage Moses with with this. He's going to encourage it. So Moses is not, again, not literally protesting. Um, he just says, I need some help. So anyway, again, some of this is a part of doubt. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, he should be okay with him and God going at it alone. But he does doubt. So there's some doubt creeping into Moses. And again, the doubt always is centering on Moses' self uh, many times and sometimes the Israelites because he's, he's afraid like what happened last time 40 years ago that he's going to mess things up, that he's going to say the wrong things like he did 40 years ago and did the wrong acts and said the wrong things and they said, who made you the judge and prince over us? Remember that? And so he doesn't want that happening again. So he wants to be assured that, Lord, I, I need your help in saying the right things is what he's saying. It's like what Jesus told the apostles in Matthew 10. He says, but when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour uh, what you should speak. For it will, uh, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. It's that concept that's going on here. Verse 11. So the Lord said, who has made man's mouth? Who has who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you say, shall say. Right there in God's answer to Moses, God is telling you what Moses is asking. I will tell you what to say. So Moses is basically, I don't know what to say to these people. You're going to have to give me the words. You're going to have to help me here. So again, it's not it it's not typically trans interpreted right. And so this is the best way to understand this text. Um so also another note I want to make don't take this passage in a fatalistic way, the way God responds. That it says, Who made man's mouth, the the deaf, the mute, and the blind? Um uh, the passage is not saying that God creates people this way. And in a fatalistic way. So he creates some blind, he creates some deaf, he creates some mute. That's not what the passage is trying to say. Again, if you take it just on fixed value in the English, that's how you would take it. And so a lot of Calvinists take that. But that's not what the passage is saying. It's, taught, it's very Hebraic in the way God is even expressing himself to Moses. The point that God's trying to make is, I am so mighty that I can take And call anybody, even a mute, a deaf, or a blind person, Moses, and take their shortcomings and work through them. That's what God is saying to Moses. And so Moses, don't worry about it. I got this one. I'll give you the words to speak. I have control over the human ability to speak, the human ability to hear and see. Don't worry about it. So these are general terms of how they spoke in the middle or Near East and Middle East. And so you have to again always interpret the text from its Middle Eastern or Near Eastern background, in the way they its Hebraic framework. Otherwise, you'll take it and totally mess it up. So, anyway, God is promising help for Moses, uh, being a prophet, obviously, to the Israelites, but also to speaking the truth to Pharaoh, right? He's going to give them the words to say. Um, so Moses is is Israel's prophet in this sense. He's a great prophet. But here's what he we we also need to know. God will supply the right words to us at the right time, sometime. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get prepared. Um, but there's some times where we t- just have to walk in faith, and we God will prompt us to go speak to somebody or say something, and we don't know what we're going to say, But in the moment, God will give us the words to speak. And again, I don't recommend this for preaching. You have to study. I don't recommend this doing this in a Bible study. But I'm talking off the cuff uh, type of thing where you're going into a situation. You don't know what to expect. And you pray, Lord, give me the words to speak at this point in time. I don't know what to say. And he will right at the moment that you need to. He'll help you in that if you ask for that help. And that's what Moses is doing. So anyway, let's return to the text in verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send the hand of whomever else you you may send. And again, now Moses is is getting into the mode of protest, right? Um, By him saying this, Moses is saying he doesn't actually want to do it. Um, And so, but he's responding to God in a very non-offensive way. And and saying, is there anyone else? He's still trying to be humble, but is there anyone else that could do this? But in essence... Moses is refusing the call at this point. He's made of all, he's made of a lot of uh, excuses, and he's not the only prophet to refuse the call. Remember Jonah. But um, at the end of the day, Moses doesn't really want to do this. He starts counting the costs and understands. He knows his shortcomings, and he's trying to bow out. Um and what I like what John Walvard said in his commentary he says Moses was speaking more out of disobedience than fear, the fear of God. uh he just simply doesn't want to do it for whatever reason um and, and, and again we could we could speculate what it is, maybe he doesn't think it's the qualifications maybe i, I who knows um, maybe he's thinking I'm just a desert hermit, and i've been out in the desert for forty years. What can I do? Find someone else more qualified? uh you know i'm i'm too old for this what whatever that is we don't know i didn't go to bible college i don't know but it's kind of the same thing we do with god he calls us to do something and we look for every excuse not to do it well, i'm not the right person i'm not eloquent I'm, i i don't you know my teeth are not straight i don't dress good or or it's whatever it's whatever ever situation you could drum up to get out of the call people will do and we're all guilty of it. And 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 so sometimes we see how difficult the call is going to be, and we run from it. So anyway, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Does God get mad? Yes, he gets mad. And at this point, God's long-suffering has come to an end with Moses. He has answered all of his questions. He's assured Moses through his, all of his doubts. And now Moses is at the point where he's saying, I don't want to do it. And this is stoking the anger of God. And obviously, we can do the same thing when we get stubborn and refuse to do what God's calls us to do. He will get angry at us. I know that's not a message that most people hear, but it's, it's right there in the scripture. He got mad at Moses and get mad at us if we disobey or refuse to do something. So God responds to Moses and says this, and he said, is not Aaron, the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak well. So, again, this is more grace given to Moses. Even though God's mad at Moses for this protest and refusing the call, that's unacceptable to God. Moses is the guy, and basically he's shutting the thing down, shutting the argument down, saying, Look, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to extend grace and mercy to you, even though I'm mad at you, for for trying to get out of this. So I'm going to bring a ministry partner to you. I'm going to bring your own brother. And this ministry partner system will help you, Moses. And we will see this ministry partner system all over the Bible. Uh, you know, whether it's Paul and Timothy or Elijah and Elisha, uh, or, you know, it's, it's Paul and Barnabas and, and Paul and Silas, or it's Barnabas and John Mark, you will always see them sent out in pairs. When Jesus sent out the disciples, He sent them out in pairs. It's called the ministry partner system. God does not want people doing things alone because it gets tough. And so now Aaron is going to be brought to him to shoulder the load, to take the brunt of Pharaoh's anger. And this is going to help Moses. So God, again, is gracious to Moses and saying, look, I'm going to help you. I'm going to provide another human being that can shoulder this load for you. And that's what we all need, too, in our call. You can't go at your call alone. You have to find ministry partners that come alongside you to help you and to support you and to take the load and to take the brunt of the heat you're going to get. And so that's that's part and parcel of ministry. You don't want to fly solo. Flying solo will get you into big trouble. You need another person. And you say, well, Aaron costs Moses a lot of problems. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Eventually, he does cause a lot of problems for Moses. But at the end of the day, Moses wouldn't want to face Pharaoh alone. He was scared to death about that because he was a man who was a fugitive. So having Aaron by his side would help Moses, would support him. And that's how it is with us. God will call you to something, but then he'll bring other people to surround you so that you can do this. That's... That's part of having a ministry partner. Anyway, in the scriptures it says, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. So God's providence is at work to help Moses. God knew that Moses needed help. So he brought him Aaron. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So Aaron will be happy. Obviously, Moses will be happy. It will be a good combination as they go in and do a spiritual battle with Pharaoh. And so, again, God designed us to function in relationships. And in good times or bad, even in the crisis that we're in, it's important to have your relationships with you in doing ministry. That's important. We feed off one another. We encourage one another. And that's what Aaron is going to be to Moses and Moses to Aaron. And this obviously it makes it sweeter that it's his own brother and they're from the same family. And so that really is going to establish a good bond between them in doing ministry for the Lord, not only with Egypt, but later on in the Exodus as well. In verse 15, it says this, Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman, not a prophet, but a spokesman, to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth of you, and you shall be to him as God. Now don't get tripped up on that word, be to him as God. What it just means is this. As God gives the message to Moses and Moses Gives the message to Pharaoh, in some of the situations, the message will come to Moses from God, and then the message then will be delivered to to Aaron to deliver to Pharaoh. So you'll see early on that Aaron will sometimes do the talking, but Aaron is not a prophet; he's a spokesman for Moses. Whereas, but he'll function like that; he'll function in the same role as Moses is with God. And so, it's not talking about you know Moses being a god; it's talking about how the how they'll function as Moses is functioning with God. That's what it all it's trying to say. Last verse, verse 17, and you shall take this rod in your hand, in which you shall do the signs. And so Moses has full assurance, he's been given the rod. The rod has uh, supernatural powers coming from God, and now God has done everything he needs to do to erase Moses' doubts. And so Moses is prepared. And for us, sometimes all these trials and tribulations that come our way, and this coronavirus crisis and may- maybe what's coming ahead after all of this is said and done, it bothers us, and we 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 see our problems and and they're right in front of us because our five senses are involved in it, and so it's more real uh than trusting or having faith in God because we can't see God he's invisible we 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 read his promises. Um, but our problems are right in front of our face. And so sometimes that's where doubts come in because we can see it and it affects our five senses more than what faith uh can't see. And so in the end, this is, this is why we struggle um, and why the, it is such a challenge to believe God's word, especially in the face of, you know, a Pharaoh, so to speak, or delivering the uh, the the Israelites out of Egypt. But that's that's how doubt creeps in. And doubt is, again, like like I said, not full-blown unbelief. When we doubt as believers, we typically have pockets of doubts or categories that we don't trust God for. For example, we may not trust God's presence with us. We may not God, trust God's goodness or love, His provision, His protection, His justice, His security. And so those doubts are many times traced to things in our past and our experiences in our past with people and reality and ourselves that cloud our vision to not see how God provides or how he loves us or how he's there for us and how he provides security. And so we go blind and we can't see it. Therefore, we have doubts about God in these pockets of our lives. So a lot of it can be traced to us misinterpreting our experiences in life. We, we distort reality and this causes us to have issues with God. Where was God when this was happening? Why didn't God save this person? Why did God allow me to lose my job? And, they, and, and and now that person is distorting reality. And because they don't see all the factors that went on in that experience. And so it's real easy for them not to trust God in these areas. Let me give an illustration of what I'm talking about. And I, I heard this illustration once before. Anyway, it goes back in time to Lord Halifax, who was a former foreign secretary of Great Britain. He once shared a railway compartment with two women. You're riding the train. A few moments before reaching his destination, the train passed through a tunnel. And obviously there was no lights, and so everything went black in the train. And in the darkness of the tunnel, Halifax, just to, to play a joke on the two women kissed the back of his hand, and he did it noisily several times. So when the train drew into the station, he rose, lifted his hat, and in a gentlemanly way said, May I thank whichever one of you two ladies I am indebted to for the charming incident in the tunnel. He then left, leaving the two ladies glaring at each other. So what had happened, obviously? Well, due to the two ladies not seeing What was going on in the cart? He was kissing the back of his hand. They really thought that he, one of them had kissed him in the tunnel. So what is the point? They had misinterpreted the situation, and now they were mad at each other because one of them had made a move on the guy. They didn't see him kiss the back of his hand. The point I'm trying to make with that illustration is when things happen to us in the past, Many times we're in a dark tunnel and we didn't see what was really happening. So the default is to mistrust God, to misinterpret that reality or that experience and say, where was God? Why didn't he help me? And so then we go into the rest of our life with a category of doubt about God's provision, God's love for us, God's goodness, God's security, And it causes the doubts inside of us. How did Moses overcome these doubts? God provided his word to him and assured him. And that's what God does for us. If we will turn to his word and trust what he says, then that will erase our doubts. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.